quick, somebody name the drummer for Spinal Tap. That's sort of the ongoing joke in the movie Spinal Tap. There's this band, and they're supposed to be this amazing band, but they have a rotating door and the drum kit. You don't know who it is. It's the forgotten man of the band Spinal Tap. I don't think they ever even name one, do they? This introduction is bombing magnificently. <laughs> well, what I was going to say is that just as we do not know, we forget about the drummer for Spinal Tap, so we forget about Joseph far too often. In our nativity scenes and in our songs, we've got angels and we've got shepherds. We've got wise men. If you look at the biblical account, the wise men are the ones that really ought not to be in the nativity scene. We've got our wise men. We've got sheep. We've got camels. My daughter Camden has a little people play set nativity scene that even has pigs in it. And if you really think about that, you'll find the joke funny as well. Of course, we've got Mary and we've got Jesus. But Joseph, in our nativity scenes, in our movies, in our plays, in our songs, Joseph always seems to end up being something of a secondary character. Quietly standing in the shadows, holding a, a lantern, maybe kneeling over Mary and the baby Jesus. He's typically presented as a sidekick to Mary, Robin to Mary's Batman, so to speak just there for moral support, just there to hold her hand, to lead her donkey, to stare at the newly born Jesus with awe and wonder. Joseph is the forgotten man of Christmas. But this forgotten man, if we look at what the Word of God has to say about him, this, this forgotten man had an incredible role to play in the coming of Jesus, and he models discipleship for us as he sacrificially obeys God. And in his discipleship, in his following God, Joseph gave up his rights, his reputation, he gave up his very life. And that's a model of discipleship. Matthew begins his gospel account by listing out the genealogy, the ancestry of Jesus, and then he moves on to discuss how it was that Jesus the Christ came to be born. Now, St. Luke centers his explanation, his narrative on Mary, but St. Matthew centers his on Joseph. In Luke's gospel, Mary receives an angelic visit Mary receives divine revelation, and there in Luke's gospel, Mary submits in obedience to God. And in Matthew's gospel, notice, Joseph does exactly the same thing. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. Matthew's setting up the narrative account, and he tells us a few very important facts about how the birth of Jesus took place. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, that's one very important fact. Before they came together, that's another important fact. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, another important fact. Matthew reveals that before anything else, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal is not a term that we use too much anymore. It's not a, a common term in our modern world. We typically, when we talk about a man and a woman coming together to be married, we typically talk about them being engaged. But betrothal carries far more meaning and has a greater depth 
of uh, weight than even our typical engagement. Because betrothal was, in the first century of Judaism, betrothal was the first step in the two-step process of marriage. It was important. It was a formal agreement between a specific man and a specific woman in a wider context between their families, and it was a binding contract. The thing about betrothal in Joseph's day was that it was legal and binding. So that to uh, break a betrothal wasn't a matter of returning a ring. It was a matter of actually taking legal steps to get a writ of divorce, to break the contract. During the betrothal period, the couple might be referred to as husband and wife, but they would not live together, nor would they be engaged in sexual intimacy. And at the end of all this betrothal period, the couple would be ceremonially married, they would consummate their marriage physically, and then begin their life together. So it's in that interim period, that, that period in which Mary and Joseph and their families have entered into a binding legal contract where they're supposed to be abstinence from sex and they're not supposed to be cohabitating together. It's in that period that Mary turns up pregnant, Matthew tells us. Before they came together, she was found to be with child. Talk about a scandal, right? While people in the ancient world didn't have pregnancy tests, sonograms, or any of the other modern technologies we enjoy, they did understand biology. And they knew where babies came from. And here's Mary in the midst of the betrothal to Joseph, in the midst of the period where they are to be celibate. Here's Mary, pregnant. Now Matthew tells us something that, that, that only Mary really understood at this point. Matthew tells us that she was pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. But to Joseph and to the city of the little town of Nazareth, there's only two natural explanations. Either Joseph and Mary violated their betrothal by consummating their marriage prematurely, or Mary cheated on Joseph with another man. And either one of those two options is a scandal. What's Joseph's response? What is he to do? Joseph knows what he hasn't done. Joseph knows that he's innocent in this matter. Joseph knows that he's not the cause of her pregnancy. What is he to do? This gets to the heart of the man when we start to understand what his legal rights were and what he actually did. Technically, Joseph could have brought Mary up on charges of adultery. Joseph could have charged her legally with the violation of the covenant. And in Old Testament law, in the law of the Judaism of the first century, as a consequence to her adultery, Mary could have been drugged out into the streets and stoned. At the very least, Joseph could have brought her up on public charges and had her publicly shamed as a very public and nasty court case leading to divorce, to get that writ of divorce. Joseph could have left her as an ancient world Hester Prynne. She could have been anointed with a scarlet letter for the rest of her life. And it was well within Joseph's rights to pursue justice and to restore his honor. But Matthew tells us he didn't do that. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
Even before Joseph received an angelic visit, even before Joseph was told that this child was from the Holy Spirit, even before Joseph got to talk to an angel, Joseph was going to protect Mary, divorce her privately, and spare her as much shame and dishonor as he possibly could. Why? Matthew says because he was a just man. Joseph was just or righteous, one who followed the law and the custom. But as scholar Kenneth Bailey has pointed out, Joseph reveals a deeper reality of justice. Notice that Matthew connects Joseph's justness or his righteousness with his desire to protect Mary. This law-abiding, upstanding citizen had compassion on Mary, and out of his desire to ensure her well-being, he was just. He was righteous. You see, being just, acting with justice, is at its core doing what is right. And as a follower of God, it means doing what is right in the eyes of God. And here is where we see that Joseph was just in God's eyes. In Isaiah 42 and in several other passages of Scripture, God reveals his terms of doing right. And in those passages, justice, doing what is right in God's eyes, is about being merciful and about being compassionate as we protect the weak and the needy. And that's what Joseph did. Mary, as an unwed yet engaged pregnant woman, would have been incredibly vulnerable. She would have been weak and needy. Her life and the life of her child could have literally been in danger Her reputation would be destroyed the rest of her life, marked by her supposed betrayal. But Joseph, at his own expense, taking upon himself the cost and the dishonor and the shame, resolved to divorce her quietly, to be just, to do what was right in God's eyes, protecting the unprotected by settling out of court, so to speak, to avoid a public shaming. He set aside his supposed rights, in order to do what was right in God's eyes, protect the weak. And in doing this, Joseph is being obedient. He's being a disciple. In a time and a place where the letter of the law was seemingly all that mattered, Joseph knew the heart of the matter. And because he knew the heart of the matter, as Kenneth Bailey has written, Joseph's bold decision at a point of crisis saves the life of the mother and the unborn child. And that's before the angel comes. It tells you a lot about the man. And then, as he's considering these things, as he's figuring out how to divorce her quietly, what to do, and and to be just, as he's considering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Can I just say, when God is at work, when God breaks in and begins to work, Nothing remains the same. And in the angelic dream, Joseph is called into a deeper discipleship, one of active obedience, as he's told that Mary is and has been faithful to him as the child is from God and not man. And this is all part of the Creator's plan. This isn't just another baby, Joseph was told. This child is the Son of God and to be appropriately named Jesus. In Hebrew, the name Jesus is Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh saves. This name is appropriate because this child, Jesus, as the angel tells Joseph, will save his people from their sins. Talk about a spoiler alert, right? 
I won't tell you how Rogue One ends. Notice what Joseph does. Right? Notice what Joseph does. He's heard all of this. He's, he's already sort of considered what he's going to do with his pregnant fiance, his, his betrothed. He's already sought to do what God would have him do. Then an angel breaks in upon him with, with this revelation. And notice what Joseph does. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him to. He obeys. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. He did exactly what he was called to do by the angel, by God through the angel. And that's what disciples do, don't they? Disciples respond to God's grace with obedience. But there's always a cost. There's always a cost. And Joseph here, a model of discipleship, because one, he seeks to do that which God would have him do. Second, he hears from God through the angel and obeys, knowing that it will cost him. Knowing that there is a cost to pay. Obedience is the faithful response to the grace of God. One receives God's grace. And then responds to that grace with the first sort of act of obedience, faith, and trust. And then one obeys in action and behavior. That's exactly what we see in Joseph. Following God by being just and obedient always costs something. And let's not skip over the cost of discipleship for Joseph. On the one hand, Joseph paid an incredible price to obey God. He gave up his rights. His rights as a father, his rights as a husband. One of the greatest privileges of a Jewish man was to be a father, more specifically to be the father of a firstborn son. More to the point, in the society of Joseph's day, it was the father's absolute right to name the child born to his wife. But Joseph, in his obedience to God, sacrificed his rights of fatherhood. The firstborn child to marry is not biologically Joseph's son. And Joseph doesn't even get to name him Jack or John or George or Shlomo or Horatio. In order to obey God, Joseph had to surrender his rights, had to surrender his privilege. He could have divorced Mary. He could have charged her with adultery. He could have privately even divorced her and found a new girl to marry and with whom to raise a family to have his little Shlomo. Joseph could have enjoyed his privileges and demanded his rights, but to do that, he would have had to disobey God. He weighed the cost and he obeyed anyway. He surrendered his privilege. Wow. That was a tang tungler. He surrendered his privileges, his so-called rights to follow God in obedience as a disciple. And there's a model of discipleship for us. In this season of Advent, this season of Jesus coming, are there so-called rights that keep us from following God with the obedience of Joseph? But that's not all that it cost Joseph. Joseph's obedience to God not only cost him the rights of a father, it most certainly cost him his reputation. Joseph is no fool. He knows that Mary's pregnancy, what it will mean for her. He knows what it will mean for him. He knows what it will mean for the child. Joseph knows life in a small town, the little village of Nazareth, is probably no more than 200 people. He knows the shattered reputation, the whispers, the thinly veiled innuendos, 
He knows the cutting remarks that will shadow Mary the rest of her life, that will shadow their betrothal, and that will shadow their marriage together and the life that they live. Poet W.H. Auden put together this little poem that reflects the cultural reality Joseph faced. Joseph, have you heard what Mary said occurred? Yes, it may be so. Is it likely? No. Mary may be pure, but Joseph, are you sure? How is one to tell? Suppose, for instance, well, maybe, maybe not. But Joseph, you know what your world will say about you anyway. Joseph knew this, and Joseph obeyed. You can almost hear the whispers in the marketplace. There goes that fool Joseph, still hanging on to that hussy Mary. She says God did it. What a moron he is. But as pastor and author Tim Keller writes, to become a Christian, you're going to have to have the courage to do something our culture thinks is absolutely crazy. And Joseph did something that his world would have had to have thought were absolutely, was absolutely crazy. Joseph models discipleship as he sacrifices his reputation and obeys God. And in this season of Advent, the season of Jesus' coming, are there concerns of prestige and reputation that keep us from following God with the obedience of Joseph? Joseph gave up his rights. Joseph gave up his reputation. Joseph gave up control of his life. His life was no longer his own, if it ever really was. Being obedient to God led Joseph to leave his home. We know the story. He takes Mary with him to Bethlehem to register with Mary, and there Jesus was born. But what happens next? They return to Nazareth and set up a happy home? No. Joseph and Mary and Jesus didn't return to Nazareth. They went instead to Egypt out of obedience. In Matthew chapter 2, Joseph had another dream. This time the angel told him to take his young family into Egypt to avoid Herod's wrath, and he did, and they did. And later in chapter 2, Joseph had a third dream. This time the angel said it was time to return home, and they did. As Joseph was a disciple, as he was obedient, his life was not his own to control. He surrendered it to God and followed after God because of his faith in obedience. Joseph is a model disciple because the, he pays the cost of discipleship. Joseph's adopted son, Jesus, will later say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Sometimes the cost of discipleship sounds brutal and painful and much too high, doesn't it? But at this point, perhaps as we consider or are considering or are following Jesus, looking for a courageous discipleship like Joseph, perhaps we're hesitant because of that high cost. Like Joseph, being a disciple means losing the rights of self-determination. It means losing reputation. It maybe even means giving up rights, and it gives up life. But here we must remember the high cost Jesus paid. So that, he may have, so that we may have peace with God, the forgiveness of sins, and life in him. We must remember the glory of the incarnation is found in the eternal Son of God being born into a cold and dark world that would reject him and continues to reject him. 
When we're tempted to throw ourselves a pity party about the cost of discipleship, we must remember that Jesus himself gave up any right of self-determination, did himself follow the will of the Father, even to the cross, giving up his life so that we might live. What we find when we give up ourselves, what we find when we obey, trust and obey like Joseph, what we find is that then in Jesus, we become truly alive. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said this about discipleship. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. The kind of discipleship Joseph models is the kind that results in life with Christ, in Christ, filled with his Holy Spirit. The kind of discipleship that Joseph models is the kind that requires true courage and it requires true faith and it results in true life in God's grace. In this season of Advent, this season of Jesus' coming, are there aspects of our lives that we cling to and refuse to lose that keep us from following Jesus with the obedience of Joseph? Advent is about expectation and renewal. It's about looking back toward Jesus' first coming with thanksgiving and celebration. It's about looking forward to Jesus' second coming with hope and expectation. And Advent is about seeking Christ coming now in our lives. By God's grace, may we be disciples like Joseph, courageously sacrificing our rights, our reputation, and our very lives in our obedient response to the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.